Hello, everyone. Welcome to All Things Episcopal, where we talk about anything and everything related to the Episcopal Church. This podcast was designed with younger folks in mind and as a space to learn more about the Christian faith with the Episcopal lens. So in traditionally Episcopalian greeting fashion, the Lord be with you. Hey, friends, welcome back to All Things Episcopal. Today, we have a really cool uh, conversation um, and topic lined up. And we also have a guest with us. It is the very Reverend Dr. Andy Keys. Um, or do you want your full name said? That's fine. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Dean Keys is here to talk about do Episcopalians actually read scripture? And I think the answer is maybe yes. <laughs> to, be de- to be determined. <laughs> um, so uh, we are also joined with uh, uh, Father David Kendrick uh, from St. John's Episcopal, and you are very familiar with his voice. So, Father David, you want to give a shout out? Hey, everybody. Glad to be back. Andy, it's uh, good to have a little Alabama reunion. That's right. <laughs> so- from the Northern Kingdom. <laughs> So Andy and I both were in the Diocese of Alabama back in the early uh, teens. I, I came to West Missouri in 2013. But uh, yeah, so Andy and I know know each other well from the Diocese of Alabama. And and uh, some of what you're going to hear me say comes from some of the things uh, used in the confirmation class from Alabama that I still use today. Oh, cool. Neat. Well... Dean Andy, since our listeners may not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about you and your story and, you know, your call to the priesthood. So, uh, sure. So um, I've been ordained for 21 years now. Um, I am the uh, I am a cradle Episcopalian baptized as a one month old in the Episcopal Church. Uh, while my father was in seminary. So I grew up in the church with my dad as a priest uh, and started serving in the church as a very young child, started singing in a choir at age six, started acolyting, probably not till about age 12 then, but um, have always been involved and uh, felt a calling at a young age to the priesthood and um, wanted to, to test that out. So I ended up going to Swanee for undergrad uh, and figured that would make it or break it and uh, confirmed that call, but I didn't want to go right out of college. I wanted to work in the corporate world first. So I did. I I worked in the corporate world for seven years and then ended up going back to Sewanee uh, for seminary. Graduated in 02 and was ordained uh, deacon and priest that year. And then went back in 2013 for a, uh, Doctor of Ministry, graduated in 18 with that, again from Swanee. So I like to say I'm a triple tiger <laughs> and uh, did that. So, and uh, came here to the cathedral in uh, 2019. Okay. So just before the pandemic hit? Uh, literally just before the pandemic hit. I came in December of 2019. And our last Sunday before shutdown was March 8th. Wow. So the last year or so was really was really your first full like church year experience at the cathedral then. 
like a uh, year, year and a half. Yeah, I would say 2022, probably. Yeah. yeah. So beginning of 2021 was still a little iffy. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been interesting. So I got I, I got just to the point where I felt like I knew people's names, and then we shut down. And then you got a whole new wave of people coming, and, right? And, some, and, some and an online presence that we didn't have before. Yeah. So there you go. So one of the things that um, is unique to your position is that you have a different title than father. So can you tell us a little bit about why people call you Dean Andy versus Father Andy? Well, I'm still am Father Andy. That doesn't change. Uh, that it's it's not a different title in that sense. Although, uh, as the dean of the cathedral, you're basically the the rector mm-hmm. of the cathedral. But the cathedral is also it has a parish church, but it also is the center of of diocesan activities. So, uh, the dean kind of oversees both the parish side and when it comes to some of those diocesan things, not as a member of diocesan staff, but just to make the cathedral available and and open for for diocesan events and things like that. And so dean is the title that goes with that position. Nice. So nice. I go by that. Cool. But father's still okay. Yeah. Or just Andy. Or just Andy. <laughs> and and the uh you get the title very in your in your name. So you be you go from the reverend to the very reverend. And my oldest child said why aren't you just called the Reverender? <laughs> I like that. I'm gonna have to. I'm I'm gonna have to start thinking about that. And every time I see you, the Reverender. So they made me a sign for my nameplate that says the Reverender. Oh, that's great. Um, so one of the things that um we're gonna talk about today is scripture. And since we've already kind of touched on your story, I'd love to know if there are some favorite uh pieces of scripture that uh, you have found that form your identity as a Christian and um, Episcopalian? Uh, There are. I don't know that. Well, I have some specific things I can say, but for the most part, uh, you heard me say that I started singing in the choir Mm -hmm. uh, at age six in a children's choir. Mm -hmm. And, And I feel like my first sort of introduction to scripture came through singing, oh. uh, came through the various anthems we would do. And then as I went from children's choir to the adult choir, um, because so much scripture is set to music and you learn that and we do these anthems. Sometimes I've done them over and over and over and over and over. And that's how that was a way to learn scripture and be formed by that. Mm. Um, the, uh, project I did for my for my D men is called uh, music as a tool for spiritual formation. Oh, okay. And I focus mostly on the Anglican choral tradition because that's the way I was was brought up, but it can work in other traditions as well. Uh and so I find that one of the biggest hooks there was I felt like at age 6 I remember singing an anthem about um the ascension and I don't think as a six-year-old, you really have an understanding of what the ascension is all about. But I felt I did because the word spoke so clearly to me. And that, it was a children's anthem, granted, very much a children's anthem, but the text was straight from the gospel. It wasn't like rewritten or tried to make childlike from, it was the actual words from scripture. So 
that was sort of burned into me right away. And and I think music has a way of doing that, that uh, I'm not going to be able to quote who said this, but um, one of the ancients, David, you might be able to do it, said, you know, Augustine or one of those said singing is like praying twice. So you you really do begin to to it becomes a part of who you are. Yeah. So that's always stuck with me. And 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 when I hear certain passages of scripture, I'll immediately go to the that that music. Mm. And I can't hear it without singing it. You know, when you hear anything, and I use this in church a lot, when you hear anything from scripture that is part of a piece, say out of Handel's Messiah. Mm-hmm you're going to probably start singing it in your head if you yeah. know Handel's Messiah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whether that's Isaiah or whether that's Revelation or whatever he pulls from, whatever other prophets he pulls from, you're going to hear that. So so those are some of my favorites. I, that's not being specific. But if you want some specifics, I've always loved uh, the last chapter of Revelation. Say more. <laughs> and if you, know, if you know and understand the book of Revelation, mm-hmm which a lot of people do not. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> that last chapter is such a hopeful, mm. beautiful um, um, commentary on on sort of sur- summing up all of Scripture because John basically says in that whole, that whole book, or the whole, all of Revelation, you know, if you haven't figured it out by now, here it is. Yeah. Okay, because he repeats all these, Old Testament lines to say, this is what it's all pointing to. And here it is. And then you get the the famous words, you know, I am Alpha and Omega and the whole bit. And so it really sums it up nicely. It's always been a favorite of mine. Um, I've always loved the book of Jonah, which is very short, but uh, it goes to kind of be like us who want to run away sometimes. Yeah. But ultimately, when we answer, we do what we're called to do. But then with Jonah, it's funny because he gets mad because God does what God says God's going to do. And Jonah didn't like it. Um, <laughs> and still gets mad. And so it's my favorite line of scripture in there when Jonah is sulking under the bush. And and and, and it says, and God appointed a worm <laughs> to go kill the bush. Yeah. And then Jonah gets all mad. But uh, so that's a favorite of mine to um, John's prologue in John's gospel. All of John's gospel, for that matter. Yeah. But the prologue in particular, which I'll talk more about later. Yeah. So from what I'm gathering, Episcopalians, in many ways, actually do read the Bible in in <laughs> a few different ways. Because oftentimes we're teased that we don't read scripture. Because if you walk into most of our parishes, you'll see a hymnal and a BCP, but you won't see a Holy Bible. So oftentimes we can be teased about not knowing scripture, even though it's all over like our, our worship services and our, our hymns that you just referenced to. Um, Yeah. Well, um, I mean, the short answer is yes, Episcopalians do read the Bible, but they would, they would probably fail miserably at, you know, a sword drill or something like that. Uh, I know I would, (laughs) but they're, they're permeated with it from, from all kinds of different places. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, one thing I've, I've been told now I've been in some Episcopal churches where they do have Bibles in the pews too, sometimes. Uh, and some might act, ask people to follow along, but I've always been told it's, it's better to listen mm-hmm. 
instead of following along. Because if you follow along, you're going to start reading ahead or you're going to start looking at other bits or you're going to start formulating your ideas instead of just listening mm. to what's being read. Yeah. Um, and I think there's some truth to that. It's nice to hear it. So certainly if you're an Episcopalian who who goes to church, you're going to hear a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have four, mostly four scripture readings every Sunday, every time we gather to worship for, in a Eucharistic setting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, probably two or three if you're in, a, in an office setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're going to know more than you think you do. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you can necessarily just regurgitate that at a moment's notice. Yeah. And and quite honestly, that's okay. I, I don't think. No offense to those people who who can do that sort of thing, but I don't know what that how, how that makes you any better than anybody else because yeah. you can do that. Yeah. You have to actually. I mean, other than telling you what chapter and verse that is, the, the better question is: Do you understand what it's saying? Yeah. And do you understand what the what the context of that is, mm-hmm. and what the bigger picture of that is? And I think that's that's the part where where people get lost and confused sometimes is context is relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Father David, do you have thoughts on this as well? Sure. So, um, uh, you know, I've told, I've talked about some of my story. I don't know. I don't know how much I've said and can't remember how much I've said. And in my case, you know, I was, I was raised Southern Baptist. Now, whenever I say that, the next thing I feel like I have to add was, it was the 1970s. Uh, it, it was not the same Southern Baptist convention that today is basically fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. I, my upbringing was not fundamentalist. You know, I, I learned as a as a youngster that you could look for, you could find a theological truth in the stories of creation in Genesis without trying to twist yourself into intellectual knots trying to make it somehow historically or scientifically accurate right that there, there's a truth about who we are as human beings as made in the image of god and yet fallen and that's true regardless of you know whether there was one man one whether there was a man named a man named adam and a woman named eve you know in the garden of eden <clears throat> so so on the one hand i, I actually do kind of look back at my Southern Baptist upbringing, it did give me, I think, to some extent, reverence for the word in, in, in terms of the Bible. In fact, here, you might appreciate this story, Andy. When I was, uh, when, when, when I was in Alabama, there was one year where uh, the Episcopal Church women had their annual convocation at my parish. Right. And they'd asked, and they'd asked Bishop Key, our, our bishop was Key Sloan, to come and be the keynoter. And he was in my office and he had his Bible app out and he was looking, he was kind of thumbing through and he said, I'm looking for that. I'm looking for that story where it says that there were these women, Mary Magdalene and others, and they supported Jesus in his ministry. And I said, try Luke chapter seven, chapter eight. And sure enough, there was literally between chapter seven and chapter eight. And, and and Key found it, and then he he looked at me and smiled and said, "You must be a former Baptist." <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, but I will say this: being an Episcopalian has certainly deepened my understanding. And if you ask me, one of my favorite lines of scripture 
it's actually one of the most familiar lines of scripture, but I, I think I don't think we always understand what it really means. And it's it is from the prologue to John's gospel, where you know it built it that starts the word was with God and the word was God, and it builds to that crescendo in, ver, in verse 14, and the word was made flesh. You notice that it does not say the word was written down. Right. Yeah. The word is Jesus, but the Bible, I, I, what the Episcopal Church taught me is that the Episcopal, the, the Bible, it is a record of God inspiring the human authors, and they wrote down what they heard God telling them, sometimes within, as you say, Andy, the context of their own culture, their own circumstances. And so it's not that we look at every single word and think, okay, this is God dictating to us. Right. You have to trust the spirit to let you find the true meat, the deeper meaning. And Jesus, Jesus is the word. And Jesus became a human being who is, who, who is the ultimate interpreter of scripture. So, Father David, you kind of um, beat me to the punch about how do we, as Episcopalians, uh, view Holy Scripture. And I think um, based on both of your responses so far about scripture, it's that we view it as inspired, as, as the inspired word. Um, and so, do you, do you have something? Well, I don't. Want to, to I didn't mean to interrupt you. I do. I do want to say something. The and I, I mentioned earlier the the curriculum we would use in the Diocese of Alabama for for confirmation, which I still use today, um, which I I have augmented it here or there where I need to. But it, it makes that exact point. You know that that the Bible is the Word of God, capital W Word of God, and of course for us the the Word. It, the word became flesh, as John says, and, and the word is Jesus, but it's not a collection of, quote, words, small, lowercase w, of God, mm. right? So it's not that yeah. you know, God gave you these words to, and dictated them for you to write down. It is inspired through all of us, and it is it is, and it still speaks to us today mm-hmm. through our own context and through our own lives and what's going on with us today. You've heard me say in sermons before, um, you know, yes, we hear these readings, the same readings every three years, but we hear them with with new ears mm-hmm. every time we hear them yeah. because of what is going on in our lives at the time and what is happening. And for that reason, we call the Bible a living text right. because it can change. It doesn't change. Right. How we hear it changes, right. how we begin to interpret it. Now, I don't think you could go and say, well, based on this, this doesn't this used to mean this, but now it means this. Well, no, it's not going to be like that. Mm-hmm. But it, you are going to hear it differently, and certain parts of it are going to stand out to you yeah. very differently. Yeah. Um, and and if you go back historically, you know we do as Episcopalians, as part of the Anglican tradition, hold Scripture as that first part of our of Anglican theology of that three legged stool mm-hmm. of Scripture, tradition, and reason. And Scripture is the first part of that. Mm-hmm. But we have to understand that. What was happening in 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 Isaiah, you know, in the first part of Isaiah is not what's happening now. Right. In right. some sense. Right. In other senses, maybe it is. Yeah. If there's crises of faith, maybe that is the same. Yeah. I think a, a big word, and you used it, uh, Claire, was inspired. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the term we do say that the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament have been inspired by God. But that word comes, I think it's in first or second timothy where paul says all scripture is inspired by god but that 
that's a Greek word. It comes from a Greek word that basically saying it means God breathed. Mm. Right. God's right. spirit breathes. And if you ask me a way to distinguish how we understand the word inspired, we don't interpret that as meaning dictated. Right. We don't right. say God dictated every single word. We say that God's spirit inspired the human authors and then they wrote down what they heard God saying again filtered sometimes through a particular context mm-hmm. and so uh it's in you know i think some christians when they say inspired they really mean dictated mm-hmm. and that's not what the word really means right well i think that's really important to to clarify um and for for our listeners but also to remind our listeners um what that really means and i think that that's a really good segue into asking, well, how do we faithfully interpret the scriptures if it is inspired? Um, is there a process of sorts that we go through to truly understand that context that you were referring to earlier, Dean Andy, um, and to to truly have that um, message of the gospel like well, written on our hearts? I, I mean, I don't know if the... <laughs> I mean, I guess there is a process. One could always say there is a process, mm-hmm. but I don't know that I, necessarily. I, I think it is. It's an understanding, and I want to go back. You, one of the questions you had posed to me earlier, not on the podcast, but mm-hmm. ahead of time. Yeah, we're talking about translations. Yeah, does yep. the translation matter? And I think the translation does matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as David said, you that word "inspire" doesn't necessarily translate directly from greek into english Mm. and and we have to remember that the old testament texts are in hebrew the new testament texts are in greek there's some blending there when we look at the apocrypha some you would think would be hebrew were actually greek (laughs) but um so if we want to read it in its purest form we've got to be able to read those languages anything else is a translation and that's going to be subject to interpretation and to change depending who is the one translating it and you have to be careful because some people are going to write their own version of scripture mm-hmm. to their bias mm-hmm. and what they want. And that's what you have to kind of watch out for sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I do think translations do matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in those cases where the Hebrew or the Greek do not translate directly into English, we have to come up as a people with the best way to to convey what that meaning is or what we believe that meaning to be yeah and it's not so that we can tell you then you have to be this or do this right it has to be faithful to what was actually written down yeah and in that in that sense it's important to know that um we can't just take any old translation of scripture and use it on a sunday uh the there there it is actually general convention that has set down what translations are permitted to be read Mm -hmm. Um, right in church on a Sunday, and you can and you can find that list. I even think in the Episcopal glossary that's online, uh, I think somewhere you can find out what the translations are. And it's not just it's not just the King James and RSV. There's actually a fair number of translations, mm-hmm. sure. yeah, that are authorized. But yes, I mean you can't just. But to your point, you know, I mean, there are you know there are people out there who just do what are called paraphrases, right? Where they basically take the words of scripture and then they kind of put it in their own verbiage and you know and and that's in that and that there, there's a risk there right of course i would argue all translations of scripture are in effect commentaries on scripture because sure. it was a committee yeah. that decided well this is the word we're going to use well what about this word you know so 
I think it's sometimes really helpful to have at least two, maybe three translations that you go to on a fairly regular basis to help you. Oh, oh, well, this it says here, and to think about the differences and why, you know, and and what that might say about what the original meaning was. Yeah, and to to both of y'all's points about um, the importance of translations, interpretations. There's also a spectrum for where a translation of scripture will fall, word for word or meaning for meaning. And to Father David's point, having a select few, like one that would lean more word for word, more in the middle of like word for word meaning, and then one that would be meaning, um, talking about just the general concept of what the interpretation is trying to get across, I think is helpful to, to what father David was, was talking about. Um, so yeah, um, for our listeners, we'll post the official, um, approved translations of, of what, uh, the Episcopal church says, yes, we, we give our, our stamp of approval of, but by no means are we saying don't read anything beyond that read no. as much as you can? No, and what you read on your own is yeah. up to you, but you have to understand, like mentioning the the paraphrases, you, yeah. a paraphrase is going to leave some things out. And, right, right. And and I, I like to tell this story. Uh, well, I have two actually things to say. So when I was in seminary in my Old Testament class, the my professor was a uh, Hebrew scholar, and and she would say, you know, Sometimes the Hebrew doesn't translate directly. And sometimes, you know, people assume that these passages mean this because mm-hmm. the English translation might say this. And she'd say there's a perfectly good word in Hebrew for that. And that's not the word that's used. Mm. So we have to begin. We have to really begin to study it. And whenever we had to do an exegesis on anything, we were required to to um, to look at 10 different translations. Oh, my goodness. And one of those translations, one of those 10 had to be in a language other than English so that you can begin to see those differences and how how things. And then you can sort of glean kind of what the, the general meaning is there if you're not reading the Hebrew or the Greek. Sure. But when I was in my Greek class, um, an exercise our Greek professor would make us do is is we we would take a we, we had to take a whole book, a chapter of a book of the Bible mm-hmm. and we got to pick. It's part of my love of chapter 22 Revelations because that's the one I picked. And we had to write a literal translation of it from the Greek, a literal wow. word for word translation, wow. which is can be very stilted. Yeah. Then we had to write it as if we were translating it for a nine-year-old. Wow. And and do the same thing, but write it in a way that a nine-year-old could understand. Wow. Which made it very and then you sort of compare the two. And it was really interesting. And he had always said he was going to compile one day a full New Testament of each chapter written by one of his students, because only one student would get that chapter. Right. And uh, and put the literal translation next to the nine-year-old translation. But I have yet to see that uh, published. Well, I, I hope to see that one day as, as someone who is uh, studying scripture uh, frequently as a student. Um, I think it would be helpful. Um, but also I think talking about young people in scripture, I think that's a a really good, um, pathway to this next question that I have is if someone wants to start reading scripture 
more regularly or is reading scripture for the first time, uh, what book of the Bible would you suggest they start with and why? I have my answer. I'm sure David has one too. Yeah. Either of you can go. (laughs) Uh, I would, uh, I, I would say, and I have said to people to start with Mark's gospel. Mm -hmm. It's the shortest gospel. Mm -hmm. It's fairly easy to, to, to take in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would not start them in the old Testament because there are so many historical things. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of get your head around and understandings. This is pretty laid out, pretty easy to understand, mm-hmm. and it gets you into the story, and then you can build from there. Okay. Uh, that was going to be my answer. Mark's gospel. Um, it's also, you know, I, I think scholars believe Mark's gospel is really written to be read because yep. uh, you can read it aloud in under two hours. And there are a number there over the years, there have been a number of actors who've done dramatic readings of Mark's gospel. The best. Well, at this point, it's 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 been out. It's probably not as well known as it used to be. But there was a a great British actor named Alec McCallan. Yep. That's the well known one of the King. It's the King James version. But it but by and the one we all had to watch. (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea what the two of you are talking about. so Alan McCown's a British actor, and he just did it was like, like a dramatic reading of Mark's gospel. It's fabulous, yeah. And it's dramatic because he really brings out the humor, the passion. The other thing about Mark's uh all, all four of the gospels are like turning the diamond that is Jesus. They're all coming at it from a different angle, and you see different aspects. Mm-hmm. And Mark's Jesus is the most human. It is, it is, he is the most passionate, sometimes angry, Mm -hmm. sometimes funny. Um, But yeah, I mean, so I I know out, if you do YouTube, you can find um, that, that dramatic reading. And again, I mean, even with the King James language, it's, there are times you're going to laugh, you know? Um, So I would definitely, yeah, I agree. Mark's gospel is the first place um, to, to start. Um, and maybe another, and then maybe after that, yeah, I know Old Testament, it, it, it's, a, I, I, do, I actually love Genesis. I love the book of Genesis because first of all, one of my other favorite pieces of scripture is when God says to a- Abraham and you, all nations will be blessed, right? When he first tells him, leave your family, leave your home, go to a place that I'm going to show you because the whole story of the Bible. The whole story of our faith as Jews and Christians is starts there. It, yep. This is all about human beings are screwed up because we we fail to trust God. And so we're alienated from God. We're alienated from each other. And everything that's going on in the Bible is about God trying to get human beings reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. And it all starts way back when with that promise in you, all nations will be blessed. And that's what we're still trying to work for today is the reconciliation of all people. Mm. Um, so I think there's value in Genesis if one understands that it's meant to be read to some extent. And I'm not going to say all of Genesis is just myth, but to understand Genesis is more archetypal, more of an archetype of the human condition. I, then I think you can recognize the human condition <laughs> in these flawed but brilliant characters in Genesis. And you don't have to know the historic some of the historical things 
as much. I mean, it is still a story. Mm-hmm. Um, albeit, as David says, it really starts at chapter 12. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got the backstory. But, um, I, you know, here's an interesting thing. And this, again, going back to my Old Testament professor and my Greek professor, they both said something that I found fascinating, which which changed the way I, I view some of this sometimes. Um, that when you read Genesis chapter 1, the, the very opening words in English, we would say, in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Have I have you heard me say this before? No. Uh, but the Hebrew doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew says, in beginning. There's no direct article. And why English translators felt necessary to put that in there, we don't know. Because it changes the whole idea. Yeah. It gives you, to say in the beginning means there's a point in time which it started. To say in beginning just means... This is this is where the story begins. It doesn't mean that there was nothing before or nothing after it. I mean, the story of creation pretty much does say there was nothing before it, but it, it, it's where we come into the picture, right? Uh, and in John's prologue's the same way. The Greek says, "In beginning was the word," not "in the beginning," as the English says. And my my Greek professor used to say, "It's like it's like pr- pretend you go to a baseball game in the third inning, yeah. and you leave in the sixth inning." The the game was already going on when you got there. The game continues to go on after you leave. That's kind of us in John's prologue. In beginning, you know, was the word. This is where we come into the picture. And and there was a picture before we got there. And there will be a picture after we leave. Yeah. And it and then if you come at it from that perspective, I, I don't know. That just lines everything else else up to say, I don't, I don't have to have been present when these things happened or when these things are written about but because they happen or written about i'm now part of that story and can relate to it yeah i think one of the things that i've i've really appreciated about um definitely hearing both of you talk about scripture at various in, in various conversations um father david and, and dean andy is um you'll oftentimes reference other people Mm. Um, recognizing that other people have also done research and reflection on scriptures. And I'm curious if you have some favorite Bible scholars or commentaries that you go to, to seek deeper understanding um, or wisdom from when trying to understand the text that's been put in front of you for, you know, the lectionary readings on, on a Sunday or in your devotions, um, you know, who, who do you go to, to seek wisdom from if, if you're either stumped or you're just like, Oh, I I'm curious, what could this possibly mean outside of what I think it means? Well, I'll go, I'll take a stab at it. I think, and I have two for the old Testament. The name that jumps to my mind is Walter Brueggemann. Um, he writes, pretty much extensively on the Old Testament. Um, and he has done, I think, a, the, be- the better job than anyone of taking es- especially the prophetic words of the Old Testament mm-hmm. and making them relevant to our culture, understanding that a lot of the same issues we're struggling with, the ancient Israelites were struggling with, power, um, economic oppression, and that prophecy is not fortune-telling, 
prophecy is ex- is basically an act of holy imagination where you're trying to tell people to imagine a different world than the one you're living in and that's what what it means when people are are prophesying and on the new testament um uh i guess probably the, my favorite scholar is raymond brown who is now deceased um he was a he was actually a paulist father but he taught for most of his career at union theological seminary so if you think about the <laughs> a roman catholic biblical scholar teaching at a, a presbyterian seminary and he was very and, and so he wasn't stuck in his own roman catholic world and he comes i guess what i like about him is that he is able he he does the best job of balancing a critical understanding of scripture that is understanding that sometimes there there may be stories there may be contexts behind the new testament that we may we need to understand and and so not take everything at face value at the new testament but at the same time he also he didn't go in for something like the Jesus seminar. Did you ever hear of the Jesus seminar, Claire? Oh yeah. Yeah. Claire, did you ever hear basically nope, it was, it was I have no a, idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it was a bunch of very progressive biblical scholars who had and it was it was it was really kind of self-selected. They right. came from a particular view and they literally would have these meetings and look at the gospels and they had this and then they would vote on different sayings and and stories about Jesus depending on like a red marble or black marble or white marble like and they made this definitive version. Jesus didn't say this. Well, he did say this, or he might have said this. It was all pretty much their view of Jesus was he was a he was a great philosopher. And, it, and it, in other words, they took a very deconstructionist view of the Gospels. And and Brown made it clear that, quite frankly, he thought a lot of that was just them reading their own biases. Right. Mm. And that and that is a danger. You get a lot of commentators either who take it so much at face value and they try to defend it at face value that they aren't willing to allow there might be some context there. And then there are other people who basically just deconstruct everything and just assume it's all just some myth or a lot of stuff was put in there because the church wanted to preserve its authority. In other words, they they kind of take a, a postmodernistic, a very skeptical view, overly skeptical view. Yeah. And I think Brown did the best job of being critical, but at the same time, faithful. Dean Andy? Well, um, I agree with Brueggemann for sure on the Old Testament. I love Luke Timothy Johnson mm-hmm. when he writes uh, on New Testament things. Um, then I have a I have a, a pretty well-known Bible commentary set, the New Interpreter's Bible Commentary, which I like a lot. And, of course, that's got 8 million scholars in it so you and they reference things mm-hmm. so well so you could you just in reading three pages of that you could have you know 16 other books to go to yeah to to read more about it which is really helpful mm-hmm. if you if you really want to dive that deep into it yeah um i i don't i never took hebrew so i can't i can't just go back to hebrew but i have books that can try to explain some hebrew mm-hmm. uh i did take greek so i go to my greek new testament a lot and and reread it in Greek, and and re- try to remember what th- those things mean, and then and then translate it as best I can based on what the translation we have is. Right. Um, so those are some ways I do it. Yeah. I think it's also important for folks out there to find um, a good study Bible. Yes. Uh, that is a Bible with 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 
good annotations. Um, I, I think if I were going to recommend one for lay people as a good start there, and it's been put out, it's been put out a number of years. It's called the access Bible um, in which, I mean, there's the Oxford annotated, which is a very detailed Harper Collins, but puts out a study Bible. Their notes are very extensive. I might suggest for someone who's just starting out something like the access Bible. It also has notes, but it's not as, it's not as annotated, which actually might be better <laughs> you know, so that someone doesn't get lost too much in the weeds starting out. My, the Oxford think- annotated is my go-to. Yeah. Um, That's mine. Yeah. And I just, I love how they, I feel comfortable in that one. <laughs> yeah. Same. I, I use the new Oxford annotated Bible. Um, occasionally I'll use the CEB, um, the common English Bible. Um, uh, the study version of that, um, because one of my professors is, uh, one of the editors for Mm. it. And, um, I hope I'm not messing up the name. It's the, the new Jewish annotated study Bible. I think that's, I think that that's the title of it. Um, that I, I got in one of my, or that was recommended that we get for one of my classes in seminary. I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. Go for I it. say another thing I love to do. Um, I mean, I'll call my professors that I had in seminary and ask them questions sometimes. Or if I'm, if I know, um, like in the town, like in Florence, I knew when I was in Alabama. Sorry, I got a reference when I'm trying. To, <laughs> when I was in Alabama, um, I knew the local rabbi, and so I would go to her a lot and say, "Hey, help me understand the situation here and what's going on." And we'd have great conversation. Um, and I think that's something to do too. Don't be afraid to reach out to other clergy in the community to get their take on things. Yeah. I love that point that you just made because, um, you know, part of our, our faith, like going broad picture right now is to know our neighbors. Right. And if we can gain a deeper understanding and deeper wisdom from you know, members of a different religious tradition that are still in relationship with our own, by all means, we should do it because we are called to be in relationship with them. Right. Um, so I, I love that you just made that point. Well, Dean Andy and Father David, thank you so much for joining us in conversation today. Um, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for thank having you. me on, yeah. both of you. This has been a, a cool experience. Um, I got to learn more about you as as my boss. Um, <laughs> I, I've worked with, um, I was about to call you Father Andy, although you are so father. <laughs> I know you as Dean Andy, though. Um, I, I've worked with Dean Andy for two years, a little over two years. And I learned that one of his favorite passages is Revelation today. So um, anyways, well, We look forward to um, more questions from you all um, as listeners. And until next time, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Also with you. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about all things Episcopal, visit campusministry.dioestmo.org backslash all things Episcopal. All Things Episcopal podcast is a production of the Diocese of West Missouri in association with Resonant Media. The Lord be with you all.